Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 183 with my guest, Jan Williams. Jan uh, was the percussion instructor at the University of Buffalo, um, and he taught many people, including Jan, uh, Bobby Prebitt, who's so percussion has worked with. But Jan also worked very closely with people like Julius Eastman at the University of Buffalo, as well as John Cage and Morton Feldman, Pierre Belez, a whole slew of folks. But uh, Jan is sort of one of the um, forefathers of our field in terms of contemporary percussion, and it was really enjoyable to get to talk with him and hang and just chew the fat. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jan Williams. I certainly did. Uh, Sit back, relax, and enjoy uh, hearing about some uh, history of our contemporary percussion field. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Jan Williams. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. We had a chat um, with Jason. Was Was that last week? Yeah, I think so. We were talking about Julius Eastman, and you know, Julius is a composer that I have zero experience with prior to really the last couple of weeks. Um, managed to get through all of my studies and never even hear about him. And it was awesome to hear you talk about him. And you know, it dawned on me: it's like, of course, yeah, I need to have Jan Williams on the podcast because you <laughs> are sort of patient zero for a lot of people in my life, um, both dead and alive. Um, everybody from John Cage to Bobby Previtt, <laughs> you know, you somehow have had some sort of uh, contact with. But um, you were the professor of percussion at at uh, University of Buffalo. Is that correct? That's right. And I, before we get to that and sort of all of your, your illustrious career, can we back up to like baby Jan Williams and like tell me like what got you into percussion to begin with? Oh, man. You're not going back. <laughs> oh, you know, it was, I think it a story that mirrors many, many people, grade school, music ed teacher who didn't know how to play percussion. Um, I do remember that at one point in elementary school, I don't know, must have been fourth grade or so, everybody got to take lessons on an instrument. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, t- the teacher taking us into a room where there were all these instruments staggered. String instrument, brass, and everything. And uh, you had to decide what one you wanted to do. So, well, what happened was they doled out the instruments in alphabetical by last name of the student. So by the time they got to the... I had my eye on that French horn, man. You know, that thing would look incredible. <laughs> it did look pretty rad. I remember, I remember <laughs> seeing those things like, that's the most beautiful one in here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so... Uh, by the time they got to me, they were all gone. The only thing that left was this rubber pad and a pair of sticks. So, okay, what the heck, give it a shot. My parents were both musicians. My father, uh, uh, a dilettante, you know, a dilettante jazz uh, player, self-taught. My mother taught piano lessons. So music was definitely... Well, sorry to interrupt you. Is that what they did for a living or what else did they do for a living? No, no, no. My father only had many jobs in politics. I mean, none of them were... Either were not professional musicians. My father did weekend club days, played with a local band Mm -hmm. in Utica, New York. This Mm -hmm. is a city in central New York, about 100,000 people at that time. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is anymore. Anyway, um... So when I started, you know, with this, base, with the basics, with this teacher that showed me how to hold the sticks, uh, but after a certain point, it, appeared, it seemed to my father that I was 
actually quite. I was interested. I was taking it serious. I was working on it. So he got me together with a good percussion, a good teacher in in Utica, fortunately, George Claskins of his name, mm. at Syracuse University. He has a couple book, a book out called Strokes and Taps, which mm. is actually used, I think, was used uh, and is still available. Um, anyway, George was great. He 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 uh, was serious, and and I would go to his house on Saturdays for my lessons and. I mean, started with rudimental drumming, you know, that was all about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, three minutes, five minutes to do the long roll. Yeah. Home. You know, I did a, I, I oh. chat, I chatted, oh. <laughs> I chatted with um, uh, John Beck and we were talking about uh, rudimental drumming in the history and the sort of, was it the National Association of Rudimental Drummers? Yes. NARD? And, and, NARD, right. And, um, you know, I'm just. Can you just tell me a little bit? Of, like, so what? What year was this, or what years would this have been? This would have been. Uh, this would have been 1950. So around uh, 1950. Let's see. I was 10 years old in 49. Okay. So, uh, so around then is when I was. By then, it was established that I was going to continue doing this, and and taking the lessons and studying more seriously well and luckily george was a really good technician in terms of technique and you know everything works great uh he, he uh and and he played in the utica civic orchestra so early on you know he invited me to come and listen to rehearsals and sit in and eventually i played with the group with him he played timpani he studied with like many people with um goodman over you know for several few lessons I think and so he was a very good timpanist and a very good drummer uh but I didn't do mallets at all at that point well can you that's why I was asking because you know what when I went when I went to um when I went into fifth grade the situation you described as your first week I called it an instrument petting zoo like the (laughs) the very first time you see the gymnasium with all the instruments it was a little bit more I had more choice in what I it wasn't alphabetical order, but it was, there was a like pretty clear where, you know, boys went here, girls went here, like everybody went to where, and, and you, you, I took home a snare drum, um, yeah. but there was no mallets involved. Can you talk a little bit, but it's getting better. It's, it's now like part of the, the educational system oh, yeah. oh, for definitely. you. Can you give me, give us context? I mean, this is five years after world war two ended. I mean, like, I'm not saying this to like make you feel old, but I do want to sort of put this stuff in important historical context. What was like, what was in the air during in 1950 when like why rudimental drumming? Why was that the thing that was the bedrock of what is now a pretty big burgeoning tree of contemporary percussion music? But like, why was the rudimental snare drumming the sort of? I think it was basically MENC and NISMA, you know, New York State School Music Association. Their annual local, uh, uh, not competition, but, you know, you'd, you'd go and play and you'd grade it, right? So your grade six solo was the top, and you walked in, so you played the Shinstein, some rudimental uh, solo, or Wilcoxon, mm-hmm. or, um, and, then you, and then you got graded, and you got from a one to a six. And so I think the rudimental component of it was very much the most 
I mean, some people might have played a little xylophone solo. I didn't, but maybe that was also possible. But it was certainly the rudimental thing was the basis for that. And you worked really hard on the rudiment and playing this set of sort of required things you had to play. And then they would ask you to play certain rudiments. Uh, and then you would play your solo. How much of... I, so that was basically why that was so... And then NARD was definitely involved in this. And how closely related is this to... And did you ever serve in the military? I did not. You did not? Like, that was one of the things, the way when John talks about it, like, a lot of this stuff is very closely related to military practices and drumming within the military. Um, and that, like, when all of... I don't know, just, like, looking at John, like, of course that's what he took from the military. And when contemporary percussion was sort of becoming a thing, like in educational systems, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of like, when I'm looking back at the butterfly effect of all of like world war two had an impact on how we study percussion music. And I, I'm, my theory is that I think just the byproduct of, of American culture being so closely tied to the military in the fifties post world war two, like I think uh, I never thought of it that way, but I, uh, definitely, that uh, that is a something that could have quite have been influenced because that rudimental thing that we studied the history. You know, we went back from the early days of the rudiments when they started, mm. how they started, Revolutionary War, the guy, the drummer boys, the whole thing. So that was kind of yeah, the military. But my personal experience, the military aspect did not have such a strong role yeah. as it did, you know, with John and and his, yeah. Uh, but it was definitely an influence. I'm sure. It's. I mean, it, I, if um, if the American military was moved forward on the battlefield by four mallet marimba playing back in the day, our, yeah. our situation would be much different. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, so like, okay, so let's keep moving along here. When did you get like? When did you realize percussion was a viable path for you? Like, you're looking at your mom and your dad, both are amateur musicians. Um, maybe music was a path that made sense to them, but like it wasn't their full-time gig. When for you did it feel like, oh yeah, this is my baby. This is what I want to do. Well, this came as actually <coughs> kind of an aha moment, you know, like mm. you see in these crime shows, mm-hmm. all this mm-hmm. aha, mm-hmm. you know. And so it wasn't, so the thing is, I did music all through high school. I did it all the time. I was very much involved in it, but it was a kind of like, it was just what I did. I did, you know, I mean, every, I played in the band, I played in the, the like, club dates with my father, you know, mm. my father got me my first professional gig on New Year's Eve, filling in, I was 15, filling in for some guy that dropped out, you know, drummer couldn't do it. And my father said, oh, no, I, so they called my father and he said, oh, my son's a good drummer. Why don't you take him? But, you know, and he says, okay, great. 15 bucks for a New Year's Eve, fine. And my father, oh, no, 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 no. He's much better than that. He's 25. Dude, it's like more. you and Mozart. And I didn't know. I didn't know this was going on. You and you and Mo- sorry, sorry, you and Mozart both have dads that are like <laughs> really trying to hawk them out there to the public. No, no, you got to pick 25. So there was a, it was the Ritz, Club Ritz, and you could, yeah, I remember. And uh, I was 15, I had, we had to go in through the back door, you know. And, but anyway, so we, I sort of did this stuff, but, but at the same time, both my teacher and 
my parents to a degree. So if you're thinking about music as a career, you ought, can you do anything else? Could you possibly maybe, because it's very difficult to make a living in music as a career. So they said, how, so I said, well, you know, I'm high school, I'm good at physics, I'm good at math, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in electronics, and uh, uh, I, I was a ham radio operator. You know, so I had that kind of uh, interest. I said, oh, great. They said, oh, great. So why don't you <clears throat> best do that? Then you can always do your music. So I took them up on it, and some of my friends, a couple of my other buddies, were going to Clarkson College of Technology up in Potsdam, New York. Mm-hmm. And so I applied, I got accepted, and I went up to I went up to Potsdam after high school. <clears throat> what was the name of the place again? Marie? What was the name of that school? It was Clarkson College. Clarkson. That time. Now it's Clarkson University. Okay. It's the other school in Potsdam. You know, besides uh, SUNY. Okay. And um, let's see. I got up there. I lasted till I lasted till November. It was not for me. Mm. And back then, these technical schools, it was not that hard to get in because the the whole way they operated was they let a lot of people in and weeded them out quickly. Mm. The ones that were Serious. It's like so, so percussion. I, That's how so I, percussion I, operates. I didn't know Jan. calculus, and I was <laughs> over way over my head. Uh. So then, simultaneous with me thinking about it, oh, oh, I made a mistake. What am I doing here? Kind mm. of thing. In Potsdam, there was a movie theater, and the Sun, uh, SUNY there, I think, was responsible. They sponsored a series of concerts there. Mm. So Dave Brubeck Trio comes in there playing downtown. Mm. It, Probably October or whatever of that year, fifty. That would have been fifty-seven. Hmm. So I go to this concert, you know. I hear Joe Morello and you know Dave Rubin play this incredible concert, and I'd always listened to a lot of jazz in my bringing up. I mean, that was in the house. That's what they was playing all the time. So it was. That's my aha moment. Aha. I made a mistake. I blew it. But I can recoup this. I'm getting out of here. I'm going home. I'm practicing. I'm auditioning for the Eastman School. And I, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked the rest of the year in my grandfather's greenhouse. And so that's how it happened, really, when I got serious. So I auditioned mm-hmm. at Eastman mm-hmm. for Bill Street. Mm-hmm. Professor Street. Uh and got in, mm-hmm. not playing a single note on a mallet instrument. Timpani and snare drum. I had good technique on both, good ears for the for timpani, and had was had started practicing the Gardner book, you know, the mallets. Mm-hmm. Had started with that stuff. Played a few Glockenspiel parts in the orchestra, so and band, but not really, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, you could get into Eastman then without any mallet playing. This 1957. Mm-hmm. There's um, a lot. Of, so there's a lot of students right now, Jan, who are just like, 
don't you dare yeah. tell me that, Jan Williams, because yeah. <laughs> they're all out there yeah. learning mallet instruments. Because Michael Burrett teaches there now, so it's yeah. So I'm with Bill Street in his studio. He's smoking a cigar. He's got this fabulous suit on, dressed to the nines. You know, he was great. And with the Gardner book, <clears throat> scales and stuff, and then I'm still playing. I was playing in like the second second university orchestra or whatever <laughs> I was playing. I was, but it was obvious to me that this is this is great. This, mm-hmm. this is what I wanted to do. Well, around I was doing fine. I was doing good. I had a, some a scholarship, a partial scholarship, I think, even there, after I got there. Uh, and you know, I'm from Utica, New York. Okay, so in Rochester's not is only seventy or eighty miles away. It's kind of a, just a little bigger Utica. Mm-hmm. As a kid, my father and I, we went to New York at least two or three times a year, mm-hmm. specifically to hear jazz. Basin Street East, uh, you know, uh, Birdland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went. Every night to a jazz club in New York for three or four days, and my mother went shopping at Macy's. So, you know, then that was the thing we did every year. Uh, we knew a lot of people. We used to hang out at Joe Harbor Spotlight Bar, which is directly opposite from Birdland. It's not there anymore. The building's gone. But it was a little bar where all the musicians used to hang out after the shows or their gigs, right? Mm-hmm. So we would be there two, three in the morning. I'm sitting at the bar with Errol Garner, shaking his head. I'm working, you know, I'm hearing all these guys up to bonus. Last name was Gold. And I played in the pits, in the musicals, you know, by mm-hmm. all musicians. And this was like, and then we, we, my father and I would go someplace, all night place and have breakfast at 4 a.m. I mean, it was fabulous, right? So this what I did. So when I'm in, Rochester, I'm thinking, you know, the lore of the city is mm-hmm. it's pretty strong for me. I mean, I, Rochester's okay, but I remember those great, the depth of stuff that was happening. And, uh, <laughs> so, I, uh, and at the same time, I read an article in uh, New York, uh, I think it was in... Uh, uh, Life magazine or mm-hmm. something about this concert that happened at John Cage concert at retrospective or whatever in '58 mm-hmm. that was happening in the, right. So that would have been, that was in that concert was in 1958, the spring of '58, 25 year retrospective John Cage concert at Town Hall, and I'm so I'm in my second semester, early 1958. And, and I hear about this concert that was written up, you know, because here's all these guys in tails playing on wash pans and pot tubs and stuff. And there's mm-hmm. this, this, I think Nicholas Slonimsky wrote the review of mm-hmm. the thing, you know. And I'm thinking, whoa. And, pr- and the prominent person mentioned was Paul Price because he was the guy at Manhattan and he. More, many of his students played in that concert. Mm. I think I, I don't. A lot of his students were the groups that played in the concert. Paul was involved in that concert heavily. So I said, "Oh, Manhattan School. Well, let me look into maybe a transfer thing would work, you know, mm. uh, and get me to New York." So I worked on that. Was accepted, and um, went to New York in '58. 
summer of 58, right? Uh, to start at the Manhattan School at a bad, you know, bachelor of music. Studying with, study with Paul. So when I arrived with Max Newhouse and Ray DeRoche and John Bergamal, I think they were like a year ahead of me, maybe. So they were there. So it's established. Uh, you just mentioned, just, Jan, I'm really sorry. You just mentioned a bunch of people who I like obsessed about their recordings when I was in college. Like right. all of those, like is the New Jersey percussion yeah, percussion right. players. I'm not, that's not correct. Um, all of those George Crumb recordings, like with Ray yeah. DeRoche playing, it's like that name was like, I, I obsessed over those recordings and it's like, he's yeah. just your buddy in school. That just, <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah. A, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just wanted to. Oh, that, that's right. Because Ray, Ray was one of the original members of Warren and, and Solberger's group, you know, the group of contemporary music at Columbia. He was their percussionist. Mm-hmm. Warren wrote the piece for him, Janissary music for him, and he premiered it and and play and and Ray did the symphony of Warren's. And so Ray was very active with that group. And um Bergamal, Bergamal came as a jazz drummer to Manhattan. Mm-hmm. He hadn't studied mallets either, <clears throat> keyboards either. I don't think seriously until he got to got to Manhattan. Um, so I and I was like accepted right away. Max was a good friend. They're all a great friend, and they all helped. And we all and it, right from the get go, it was like okay. First rehearsal Saturday, percussion ensemble two to five. We're doing this. We're doing that. And Paul immediately. It was immediately obvious to me how um, dedicated Paul was, how seriously he took it, and how how demanding he was of students that they take it seriously. And they, you got to, you know, if your te- technique is lacking in a certain thing, you gotta, because we're doing this repertoire. So it was all like repertoire base. Mm. It was the, and Paul's <clears throat> mission of, of, of um, creating a repertoire of percussion ensemble was, you know, that was his, basically his, his mission for his whole career, uh, starting in Illinois. Well, but just to state the obvious for students who maybe don't know about Paul, again, to put this in context, like there were no percussion ensemble pieces. (laughs) Like that's why he had to like put a mission behind it because there just wasn't, it's not like you could find arrangements of Mazorsky's pictures at an exhibition and do that. But like, there was not a whole body of original rep. No, there were those persuasive percussion recording or pop arrangements of pop mm-hmm. stuff that uh, that were popular when LPs came out and Hi-Fi came in uh, to Vogue. Uh, but there was, but Paul was more interested in, in a serious repertoire analogous to you know string quartet or whatever, a serious mm-hmm. mu- music. So. You want to say uh, for percussion? Uh, so he he. Oh well, I you remember when I gave the talk at, at the institute a few years ago? Mm-hmm. I, I talked about this whole thing. So um, if you don't mind, I'll just no, please, yeah. If I can do some of that again, but I, in any case, Paul uh, early on met, Cow, met Henry Cow when he was a student at the. At the, at the Boston uh, in Boston at NEC, and mm. this is before the war. Uh, he had met Cowell, and they 
they talked and they had he knew about this stuff then mm -hmm. he became very interested in college music Asinata Pianissimo he heard about cage so quartets so he had an inkling of he knew a little bit about this stuff then the war comes along he gets drafted he spends four years in the service fighting in friggin Pacific you know I think he was a medic actually Paul Price um, was come, Price was and he comes back in 45 or 46 uh Goes back to school, Cincinnati, I think it's a master's, a master's degree. Mm -hmm. Rekindles his friendship and uh, correspondence with Cowell. Cowell introduces Kate to Harrison. Harrison and Paul get to, you know, and all of a sudden, Harrison says, you know, I got this trunk full of stuff, music that uh, we did in, you know, the corner school in L.A. and San Francisco in the 40s, mm -hmm. 41, 42, 43. I got the stuff earlier even from uh, Joanna Beyer and mm. from, uh, from uh, um, Gerald Strang. Anyway, I got this stuff you want it because nobody's doing it. So, and, and Paul said, okay, great. He, at this point, Paul, I think, is is at the University of Illinois. So he's got all this stuff and does the first performances of many of these things. Mm. First U.S. performer of the um, Rhythmicas, you know, with uh, mm -hmm. Rolled On, yeah. Rolled On Rhythmicas, pieces by Cuban composers that Cage knew and and gave to, Cage had these scores, he gives them the prize. prize. The two Rhythmicas, uh, he does, starts doing all this stuff. Uh, the Harrison Fugue, the Cage um, Constructions, one, two, three. Are those pieces, are those, uh, is it William Russell, those three Cuban sketches? William Russell, those Cub William Russell. Cuban sketches. He was also in El San Francisco, I think, area of that, at that point. Mm. Uh, but he was in that group. As, and... Um, and they shared their pieces, and yeah. and Russell was all, of course, was interested in jazz. So he had a little bit different background. You know, he ended up at the, you know, um, Preservation Hall in mm -hmm. New Orleans as the archivist and whatever. But we, so we did all those those pieces, and Paul recorded a lot of them, the very early recordings. So Urania Records, Manhattan Percussion Ensemble, which was Manhattan School Percussion Ensemble, basically. Mm -hmm. With a few other players from New York, I mean, Colgrass was in New York then, so he mm -hmm. played on, you know, um, Urania Records, and Paul started doing these these recordings. And at this time, it were hi-fi LPs were just coming hi-fi, right? So the producers were interested in that because percussion, you know. Big sound. You, you mentioned persuasive percussion. There's, there's the Enoch Light Orchestra is also really famous for when this high five stuff came out. They would do like arrangements of Oye Como Va or something and like pan the bongos really far right and the drum set be up yeah. here and the clarinet when yeah. it came in would be like way over there and it was so you could tune your hi fi system. And because that, if you were an audiophile, you would buy these records to specifically set the panning on your. Yes. Your system. Like, that's a thing. There's, like, records that were made for that. Like, kids today, when they have MP3s and, you know, and you're listening and just on headphones, like, yeah. that doesn't happen anymore. Like, but no. but there was a whole cottage industry of, of, like, people who did this, you know. Yes. And this, this persuasive percussion and the guy in Chicago. Is it Enoch Light? 
No, the other guy. Oh, um, yeah. Now it's, I think I know who you're talking about. It's going to drive me crazy now, too. It'll come to me. Anyway, this was an anathema to, 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 to the price. Mm. He like said, whoa. No. <laughs> they might have a big record contract with Victor and Capital and all those. Right. But this is not the rep we got to be doing. You know, this We need original music for the instrument. By, you know, hopefully non-percussionist composers of the day, but in order to build, and since you as percussionists, you tell the students, you as percussionists know the instruments and the genres better than most composers writing at the Mm -hmm. time. I want to, you know, write pieces yourself for your own concert. You're doing a graduate, you know, a master's, you say, well, why don't you write a piece or write a piece for Max or write a piece for John or John, write a piece for Jan, you know, for the recital. And that, that's what happened at that time. Paul had his music for percussion publishing because right from the get go, he said, this stuff has got to be published because otherwise how's it going to get out? So he started publishing music from his colleagues at university of Illinois, mm-hmm. Edward Miller and, uh, uh, these guys that were Colgrass, for example, mm-hmm. and also, uh, so he he so John's Bergamo's piece for four, a timpani solo for he wrote for Max got published. My solo for, for timpani got published. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max's a book on four mallet. Um, Max did a book on four mallet uh, technique. Very interesting book. You should pick it up just from the standpoint of uh, of the approach. What's it called? Four Mallet Studies, I think. It's it's Max Newhouse. It's, it's available for music for percussion. You know, the complete music for percussion catalog is mm-hmm. available from from a Cole Voce music. Cole Voce. Music. It's online, and you—they represent a whole bunch of publishers. If you look at Plymouth Music or Music for Percussion, the whole catalog—you can still buy something. You can still buy my piece, mm. buy anything. And Max's pieces for he Max. I remember going to his studio. He had like, like he would measure the distance between the mouths that you could possibly spread in one hand, you know, one hand out. We played, you know, the traditional grip, not the, mm-hmm. not the marimba. Um, uh, you know, Stevens grip uh, or whatever. Musser. Steven, you know, yeah. In here, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, he would be measuring these dis- distances and figuring out just how, and, and designing these exercises to, to anyway, take a look at it. It's, I will. Some it's of those, some of those, some of those method books back then, I mean, I was, I mean, this is also too like this was the beginning uh, when I when I talk about like you know NARD or anything's like when I look at what I'm what my educational system the things that I was sort of just took for granted like method books you all sort of spearheaded that too like like all at once developing a thing and then realizing oh my god we have to catalog this so that it comes yeah. out like that started with you and when I think of like that method book I want to check out but Sarone um, the Sarone snare drum etudes right and i was like okay cool i only knew of that one then i was teaching at nyu about three years ago and i heard somebody on a vibraphone and i was like that is so stupid why are you playing a snare and i walk in and it's like it's the same method book just on mallets 
the same right. exact rhythms, everything just with pitches. And I thought, I never realized that. I never used yeah, that. I didn't either. It was, it's two method books. Every etude's the exact same rhythm. One's for snare, one's on vibraphone. Yeah. And, and I was like, now, does it, is it the best sounding music in the world? No. But conceptually, that's awesome that a student yeah. could get the same method book and apply it to every instrument and you could all play together. It would all work. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. that's so cool. And, and anyway, just to say, like, I think percussionists, like, it feels like we're these weird band of tinkerers and hoarders and collectors. Like, like somebody, the idea that some was it Lou Harrison with the trunk of music, just driving around, like, like, like this stuff isn't neatly organized. This guy is a hoarder driving around. He's got cats and everything else. Like, <laughs> but like to me, when I, when I think of how uh, forward thinking or how established we all think we are now, like that was that's only like a person ago that that happened. All of this, you know, like, I don't know. I'm just fast. I'm not ignoring you, by the way. I'm just writing down all of this stuff that no, you're talking no, about. Uh, I did want to mention also uh, John Bergamo's method book called Style Studies. Mm. It's also published by Music for Percussion. Okay. And it was oh, the ideas for these books basically probably exclusively came from Price because he said, okay, we, this is something needs to be addressed mm. in a logical manner. The different styles of contempt that of percussion writing that, that composers are using these days, whether it's Ramadi's free graphic music, whether it's Carter's timpani pieces, whether it's... Uh, I don't know, but John made little etudes mm. reflecting the various styles of percussion writing at the time. Mm. It's called style study. I'll look that up. Also, there's three or four books. I mean, and I think that these books now, I mean, they, students could get something from them. Did, now, actually. did Paul Price, did, did he write a series of bass drum solos? Yes, yes. Okay. And the reason for this. The reason for that was he was ticked off. He was not happy about the going back to the NARD mm-hmm. rudimental influence and concentration at these MENC conferences, all state, all country, or whatever. He was he wanted to change that as well by having students be able to play and get graded on playing music other than rudimental snare solo and some uh, scales on the xylophone mm-hmm. right? and or some simple transcription of something on the xylophone. So he said, okay, so since there are grades one through six, how about I write some simple mu- pieces for bass drum that are a grade two or something mm-hmm. that students could use to demonstrate their abilities to play the, this particular instrument or that. You know, I think he did snare drum solos, he mm-hmm. did bass drum solos, triangle, I don't know, maybe even the triangle. He has a method book, by the way, for, Paul has a method book for triangles, castanets, and tambourine. Triangle, castanets, and tambourine. It's pretty darn good, I'm telling you. I well, don't know why. Do you know, I don't even know if that's still available. Do you know Todd Meehan? Sorry? Do you know who Todd Meehan is? 
No. That warms my heart, Jan. No, I'm just kidding. Todd's a really good friend of mine. He was one of the founder, founding members of So Percussion, and he teaches down at Baylor right now. And okay. he, he just wrote a method book a couple of years ago for triangle cassonettes and tambourine. And <laughs> and so I want to text him and be like, Paul Price beat you oh, yes. <laughs> 40 years ago. <laughs> well, well, Jan, this is, I mean, we're only like 30 minutes into this and my head is exploding with, with all this awesome information. And just like, I want to say too, that this is helping me. I've been doing a lot of conversations with Steve Reich. And when I talk to Steve Schick and John Beck, it's like all of these pieces of the puzzle are starting to be put into place in really great ways. So I just am grateful for that. Thank you. Um, now, can I ask you, what was it like to teach Bobby Previtt? <laughs> so sorry that, that's a jo- sort of a joke question but not like you also um you know your educational influence in the percussion world is is not insignificant and i'm curious um you know bobby is one person who so has worked in depth with and he talked about you non-stopped like almost to the point where it's like yeah yeah blah 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 jan is great yeah, uh, yeah he's the best okay bobby wrap it up like <laughs> um can you just talk? Can you talk a little bit about your just your 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 time as a teacher and sort of like what were what did you what was your experience like when you first got a teaching job and like what 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 did you learn what did you realize that you didn't know as soon as you started teaching you know I knew I I knew I, I didn't particularly that I was flying by the seat of my pants <laughs> me too okay in, good <laughs> in terms of like teaching right I yeah. mean it started when I was a stu- student in Manhattan I taught earn a few bucks. I taught at the private boys' school in Manhattan, snare drum kids, Mm -hmm. and I taught at the Brooklyn Conservatory. Mm. I was a percussion teacher there for for probably a couple years. I remember getting off the train of Flatbush Avenue, and the first thing I do is go into the go into the drugstore there and get a a chocolate an egg cream, you know, before I put in to teach. Anyway. But I, again, I was sort of I, relying on my background, of course, you know, the, for my teacher uh, early on. Mm-hmm. That's the way I approached it with students. And then, <clears throat> but uh, when I went to, came to Buffalo, right, I, I didn't come as a faculty member, right? Mm-hmm. I, I came to the university as a member of this group, Creative Associates, which was created in 1964, by Lucas Foss, the composer, and then chairman of the music department, whose name was Alan Sapp, also mm-hmm. a composer. <clears throat> so they started this group in 64. It was Lucas's second year as music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic. During the first year, he got together with Alan. They came up with this idea, applied to the Rockefeller Foundation, get a grant <clears throat> to start a new music group at the university. I mean, it was they didn't know quite know how it was going to well, but they had this idea. Lucas had friends at the Rockefeller know, Foundation, and at that time, Rockefeller was giving money to various universities to start groups, actually. Mm. So we, the university got this grant of a couple, I don't know, like $200,000, about $200,000 in 1964, right? It's a piece of change. Yeah, it is. It's a, piece of, it's a piece of change now, you know. It's a piece of change now. But... So they, you know, uh, so then, okay, now we got to get, <laughs> we got to get people here to be in this group. So Lucas relied on him, people he knew and he called me. And, and Bergamo was a Fromm fellow 
mm. at Tanglewood. And Lucas was very active at Tanglewood. And this is the early 60s, right? Mm-hmm. And so John knew Lucas and started working with Lucas at Tanglewood. And so Lucas hired John. Okay, it was a one-year grant, possibly renewable for a second year. The fee, the pay was $4,000 a year or 5000 if you were married. John comes up. Or, I mean, John gets hired, and then some, through word of mouth, Lucas heard of other people from Europe, a lot of Europeans, Carol Plant, and more of the soprano, who was American, but was in... Anyway, it was a very... There was 16 players mm-hmm. and composers, and what we call the hyphenated, you know, the, the pianist composer, mm-hmm. the percussionist composer, the violinist yeah. uh, so we all show up and, oh, oh no. Um, so they needed a second percussionist. And, and so Lucas goes to John and says, John, you know, who, should, who, who do you want? Who should we hire? For? And so you should get jammers. And so there were perfunctory semi-audition tapes. They held, they held auditions in, in New York at Judson Hall, but mm-hmm. they didn't have any percussions. So I had to submit tapes. Whether they ever listened to these tapes, I have no idea. I played Lamati, I played Carter, I played solo piece of, a uh, couple of solo pieces mm-hmm. of John and some other other New York composers. And I get this, I do my recital, uh, my final Mammoth uh, Master of Music recital on May 15th, 1964. And on that day, I get a telegram. They telegrams in those days. You got a telegram. That's like some kid right now getting like, I got a message in a bottle. <laughs> a bottle floated down the creek and I grabbed it and it was for me. And said, you're, you know, you're invited to be a member of this group. Well, I had misgiving. You know, I had second thoughts because I was four, uh, five years in New York at that time. Mm-hmm. Diane, my wife, the violist, we were, got married in 62. I was playing with Stokey, you know, with the uh, American Symphony. Mm-hmm. I was playing in the first couple of years of the American Symphony. I was playing in the section with Paul Price. I never auditioned for Stokey because Paul Price was the head of the section and Stokey and Paul were real close. And Stokowski said, Paul, whoever you want to use, fill out the section, go ahead. So he hired some of his students, and I got to play a lot. In fact, I even played timpani some, subbed on timpani for Elaine Jones. When she when she was freelancing, mm. doing something else, she couldn't make it. And uh, I actually got to play the Chike 4 with Stokey, which was on timpani. Which was... Anyway, uh, I thought, I don't want to, do I want to go to Buffalo? Really? They have good chicken wings there. The just, Anchor Bar. Just, they, they, the, the Anchor Bar wasn't as famous then, or no, what, John? <laughs> when I started the year we got here, I think. Anyway, uh, I was working with a lot of the groups in New York at the time. That was not the number there are these days, right? Mm-hmm. There was the group of contemporary music at Columbia. There was a Max Polykoff series, Music of Our Times at the YMHA. There was Gunther Schuler's contemporary. Uh, 20th Century Innovations concert at Carnegie Recital Hall. There was the group at Columbia University. And 
I got to play a lot of times, like, for the, on these concerts, for these series, Gunther's concerts. I didn't work with the Columbia group that much. I didn't do one or two concerts with them, but I did do a lot of work with um, these other groups. So I was getting my feet were playing contemporary music, mm-hmm. which I wanted to do by that point. You know, I was like, that. okay, this is it. I mean, I'm not going to play in an orchestra. I'm not interested the repertoire, I, you know, I want to, this new stuff is too exciting. So, I didn't want to leave New York. But I went to Paul, I said, Paul, look, I got this problem, I, I got this, um, I can go up there. He said, well, tell, what's the gig I'm talking about? He said, well, I said, we go up there, it's a group of 2016 players, it's a new music group, we get together, we rehearse, new pieces and present five concerts a year at the art gallery in Buffalo. No teaching involved, although we were like graduate, we were like research fellows, only as, instead of research, it was creative, as a creative associate, not, hmm. not a research associate. Okay. So that's what we do. No teaching. And we live it. He said, you're nuts. Go. I mean, it sounded like a most incredible opportunity. Hmm. Right. So, all right. So we went and fortunately, Diane auditioned for the an opening in a Buffalo film and got it. So we had both of those jobs. We were a little better off financially than some of the other people. But one year, and it was John and I, and then for two years, John and I, and then John left to go to University of Washington, mm-hmm. State of Washington. And um, they asked me for a third year and... Uh, and then, um, oh, but I must say, in terms of teaching, you were asking about teaching. Mm-hmm. As soon as John and I got there, having come from Manhattan, where we were like playing, rehearsing percussion pieces, working with each other, so well, we have to form a percussion. There's no percussion program. There was no percussion program. Mm-hmm. The timpanist from the Buffalo Philharmonic, who was 70 at the time, taught a little taught some, but, you know, okay. There wasn't, a, it was a music department now, you know, not a conservatory, it was no illusions of that. It was a music department in a huge university. I don't know, like Princeton, but not like Princeton. Um, wasn't a school of music. Mm-hmm. So we said, we got to do something. Like, so we put out a general call to the student body. Anybody that plays drums or percussion, you want to play in a group, come over. So we get these students coming in for pre-med, you know, the liberal arts, so a couple of music students. Mm-hmm. And we started doing pieces. Luckily, the band director at the time, uh, very good friend, we're still friends. Uh, he had previously, before I got there, wanted to do something with his band percussion section. So he had already bought some of the music percussion stuff. So I had a, a few pieces I could do, we could do right away. Hmm. So we started doing that, not private teaching, but just, and we did it gratis. It was just something we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Not part of our gig officially. Uh, so then in 67, after being there three years as a creative associate and doing these concerts in Buffalo and New York, we repeated them all in New York. That was set up after we got there because we went to Lucas and said, Lucas, you know, it's great. We do these concerts in Buffalo, but we're young and we're, 
be nice to get some New York City exposure, maybe. And so he makes a phone call again to Isaac Stern or somebody at Carnegie. And he said, all right, so we had the evenings for the music. We, we repeated the concerts in New York. Mm. And uh, so, you know, we were, that's what we were doing. I'm not teaching, teaching wasn't. But then when, when John had left and another creative associate, percussionist came, we hired, I always had two. But I was always the one, and there was another. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chairman of the department then, Alan Sat, the same chair that formed this group with Lucas, comes to me, calls me in his office one day, hey, Jen, listen, uh, George Don is retiring. Uh, would you like the faculty position? I said, well, uh, but I said, only if I can continue to do this creative associate stuff for the creative associate as part of my load, you know, with mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, yeah, just teach private students. Well, do an ensemble, great. And then you do your creative associate stuff. So I said, oh, yeah, great. So he goes into the faculty meeting, the next faculty meeting, and he says, at the end of the meeting, old business. Anybody got any old business? Oh, almost forgot, I want to introduce our new faculty member, Jan Williams, percussion. I knew everybody in the room, but Jan Williams and percussion just, oh, great, congratulations, yeah, but search committees? Did any talk to anybody not, else about this? Not even a telegram? <laughs> not nothing. <laughs> <laughs> not even a balloonatic, nothing? <laughs> this is another... Thing that's gonna really rile up your students <laughs> looking for gigs and universities. The process is much more calcified now, Jan, than it was when you were. So I said, okay, and I thought I was free to do it any way I wanted to do it. And there was no, there was no mission to, to train students for any particular, direct students or any to mm. particular path. Because a lot of times they were not majors and majors. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had 14, 15 students, or some of them majors, some weren't. So I had none decided, you know, whatever. Right, right. And, but my teaching methods were always, well, what do you want to do? I mean, what, let me see you play. And I, I think, you know, if you want, if you're serious about keyboards, is what you should do with this kind of thing. And our timpani, and I introduced them to all this stuff, the technical aspects of the various. <clears throat> areas and then of course there was the percussion ensemble and so that was really the focus again because that mm-hmm. was my mm-hmm. focus in Manhattan that was the focus of right. where I was thinking right from John to, to uh, so we always did a concert every semester rehearsed all semester and did these, you know these concerts with students so Bobby walks in as a I don't know. You heard about the music department? He was in psychology. I don't know what. I think. Yeah. What was the? What was it? Pre dentistry or something. Yeah, it was not music at all. It was something. No, no, no. And he no. And he heard about. Came in late, I think, to this. Came. came, Yeah, and he was a little older, and he comes in and he talks. Let's let's say it's let's just say it's dentistry because that would be hilarious if Bobby was if if I walked if you walked into the dentist's office and Bobby walked in, I'd be like, nope, I'm out of (laughs) here. I am not letting that man inside of my mouth with any sharp object. Do <laughs> you remember? I Diane thinks that's right. Okay. So <laughs> he comes in and says, you know, I'm I'm a jazz drummer and I play drum set and but I, you know, I'd like to take some lessons. Mm-hmm. 
I said, well, okay, I'm not a drum set <coughs> person, really. I mean, I play drums, but I'm not, not an area of expertise for me. Mm-hmm. I said, well, yeah, come in. You know, we were really open. You seem like an interesting guy. You don't know quite what you want to do. And here's the music department. we got all this contemporary music going on, and we got the percussion ensemble. So you got a lot of stuff to listen to and absorb, and maybe you'll decide. And and if you're if you're playing, you really should learn to play some keyboards. You know, I mean, come on. So here's the way you hold the students you practice scales and the, you know the whole mm. thing to introduce them to it. But if they were more interested in something else, it could go that way, right? They had to do a recital if you were a major and senior recital. They could be anything. You could play drum set, and mm-hmm. so. Bobby was around at a time when there was a lot of activity with composers coming and going because we were doing their music and Cage was there a lot and mm-hmm. Harrison came through several times and composers from New York, you know, Feldman was around and it was like that, that was what was going on there, okay? And percussion-wise, we were supporting that. Were, were you aware... Music. Were you aware at the time, or were students aware at the time, at, of, of how lucky they, they were? Or were you all pretty siloed off and just like, this was normal for you? Like, this was your status oh, quo? Yeah, I thought this was, this was just, this was normal. This was We didn't think much of it because we were tasked with learning this music. I and mean, that's what, okay, we, we, were, we were, this is what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to play these pieces and learn them and do them in the best as well as we could possibly do it. The bottom line being is a composer who's standing right there, happy with what you did or not. Mm-hmm. And if it, he wasn't, no, and, but he expressed his, this in a civil manner, which some did and some didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, we were happy if, anyway, we took it as a learning experience, but it was like work, perform it, Evaluate next. Mm. What's next? Give me the next. The next piece comes down the line because here's concert one in October, concert two in December, concert three in May. You know, of this of the creative social thing, and then also percussion ensemble, mm-hmm. inviting uh, composers we knew or who were in residence to write pieces. Well, one of the yeah. when we when we were talking about Julius Eastman last week with Jason, um, we then Jason went back and was reading the, the some of the stories about you know Bobby Previtt told a story when we first met him and it turns out it was about he was he didn't tell us at the time but it was about a Julius Eastman rehearsal I think for um, maybe not feminine or was it stay on it I don't remember which one where he tells this story where he's just like there's too many notes and somebody uh, maybe Julius came over and was just like just lay out <laughs> like like yeah yeah like was it but but it's it's interesting. Not too many notes, so it couldn't have been feminine. I don't know. It was some piece. But but it's to like when I think of um, I don't know. To me, it's just interesting because right now, it, I'm I'm shocked by how siloed we can all still be, even though we have access to everything. Um, mm. But for you having sort of crossed paths with people like everybody from John Cage to Morton Feldman and then Julius Eastman, like as a teacher were you consciously trying to harness any of that or was it just like too chaotic and you're like, as long as the students aren't like throwing up on themselves, today was a great day. Like what, 
what was your, how did you envision your role as a teacher and, and oh. how did that role as a teacher change over time or did it? Okay. I, you know, using Bobby as a, as a, as a example, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think I ever took Bobby aside and said, Bobby, I just want to make sure you understand what you have here. You have access to these components. You got, you, you're able to hang out with them and, and these guys are like really important. Hmm. And so you want to make sure that you're taking it. No conversation like that yeah. ever happened. Whatever happened, happened by naturally things, interactions happening, hmm. connection with pieces, problems coming up that needed to be solved with, in terms of a particular piece where you could where you could interact directly with the composer to address the problem and figure out what, what, it, not sure what you, and with Julius, that was all, very often, like, mm-hmm. what are you, is, it, <laughs> is this what you're like, oh, okay, that's, you know, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. or is it like, just on page full of notes that you have to woodshed, mm-hmm. and, and no question, put the metronome on and boom, learn them. Um, so I don't think it was did I hard, try to harness that not in a really overt sort of conscious way I don't think mm-hmm. it was just the manure as a small town and it's, you know what I mean we were like close we all lived there we hung out together we mm-hmm. went to the anchor bar for Wayne's we went to par- after concert parties at Morton Feldman's apartment with Elliot Carter that, you know we so it was like we were we're living together. It was like a, a commune, not a commune, but I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. it's a small enough city so that, you know, you'd run into, you'd run into Morty and I would have, and we would go into the store, you know, he didn't drive. And I drove him up to the university all the time because mm-hmm. he could, he was virtually blind. Uh, so talking, you know, in and out of context. So, and, Problems came up with the creative associates, the funding, the bottom line, and uh, all this outlined in Renee, Renee Levine's book, you know, mm-hmm. the sound, this life of sound, which I told Jason about. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't read it, you might find it interesting. This life of sound okay. by Renee Levine, Packer, P-A-C-K-E-R, published by Oxford University Press. Okay. It's called... This Life of Sounds, Evenings for New Music in Buffalo, or something like that. Okay. This is a book which outlines the whole experience. Awesome. I will check that out for sure. There are photos in here, a lot of photos. And it, the book is very interesting because a lot of it is anecdotal. Mm-hmm. That's, Story. That's my favorite type of history anyway. Story. I'm... I'm there's Renee and and uh, Renee and uh, David Tudor on stage. Oh, nice. I mean, well, well, there's all kinds of this book. There's you know this guy, <clears throat> Peter Kotick. No, I don't know him. Oh, you don't know Peter? That's the M ensemble. Aha. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. Right. So, um, well, let me ask you, Jan. I like, think you would find that interesting. I will check. I will check that out. You know, one of the things that's dawned on me that that is sort of like 
you know, uh, one of the things just if I'm just looking at data points when I was a student growing up and you just looked at the amount of living composers your colleagues work with on a daily basis versus you or me, for example, it started to set into me that I just by default of being a percussionist am around more living composers than say a violinist or a pianist. Um, I'm, I don't have an answer here. I'm, this is more of a question. Like, what do you think that does to percussionists? What, what's the benefit? Like why, what, why are we around? I'm sort of, maybe the answer is obvious, but what is it about percussionists that sticks us around? Why did, why is Julius Eastman and why is John Cage and why is Morton Feltman three completely different people somehow gravitationally pulled towards percussion? Yeah, it's because of us, the percussionists, I guess, uh, and the medium that had only come into vo- to view to a lot of these composers very, you know, from the 1960s, they didn't had no concept of what could be done. Mm-hmm. And again, Paul's attitude was, well, if a composer doesn't know the capabilities of a particular percussion instrument, you know, help them discover this. You know, not tell them what to write, but make sure they understand the vast scope of possibilities that they may not be aware of. So that's kind of encouraged composers to write. Uh, But I think it's just, yeah, the nature of the very late but kind of explosive development of the repertoire at a particular time and then say, again, 1950s, say, whatever. We're including those pieces from the 40s, of Mm -hmm. course, from, from John and those people. But I think that was so impressive that both composers and percussion students of percussion, percussion students like Bobby Barrett became aware of a much larger uh, world out there that they, they could be involved in, listen to and, and engage with and question and, you know, and, I was always so impressed by how many students didn't listen to music. I said, what do you listen to these days? Oh, do you know this piece? Do you know that? No. It's like, wait a minute. You're a student of music, and you're not listening to music constantly, all day long, every minute listening. Uh, So I think... Yeah, but Jan, I want to be a professional wrestler. That doesn't mean I'm going to wrestle all day, every day. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, listen, yeah, I know. be aware of what's going on. Yeah. So, you're, in other words, just open, open your ears to other things well, besides country western music or, um, or, or, you know, or whatever, symphony record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it, but in the end, you need to sort of be interested in originality and mm. as a concept of originality as a as a as a raison d'etre. I mean it's a piece is original to me. That's then then I like I just heard two new pieces yesterday sent to me by Kalia Hakosalo, this Finnish percussionist mm-hmm. who I'm corresponding with because he's got a lot of questions like he was over 
going back and forth. But he said two pieces his group played, piece with two flexitones and piano. Totally notated, completely. The sound was like a totally new sound to me. I don't, they don't sound like flexitones, first of all. <laughs> they are. I mean, but, but in terms of the way the piece is put together, too, it was a very, very mm. unique and, and interesting original to me. The other piece was for... Um, was for uh, electro, um, electronics, noise, mm. noise, uh, totally rhythmically, score online, you know, you can follow, but totally something I'd never heard before. Well, this piques my interest, you know, always has. So, well, it's, I mean, uh, when you mentioned Bobby, I mean, one of the things about Bob, Bobby that, that I, I mean, when he talked about you all the time, he talked about you in this, it was weird. He never said like, oh, Jan, Jan was the, re- Jan is the reason I play drums like this, or Jan is the reason I write music like this. It was always like my music, I'm a better composer because like he always talked about it in the context of composing. And I think mm-hmm. because he was, you threw him in that deep end. Um, with people like, like he was in the room with Julius, he was in the room with John Cage, he was in the room with Morton Feldman, and somehow Bobby's music, how he synthesized, synthesized all that. Yes, that's right. Bo- Bobby's proactiveness, but also you created an environment for him in which he could synthesize it on his own terms. And now yeah. I'm up on stage with Bobby. Like, sorry, this is this is a from one of the shows we did in New York, and right. of Bobby's piece called Terminals, and that's me crack, oh, yeah, I know. cracking a bullwhip. And, right. and screaming "Yeehaw!" at the top of my lungs in the middle of his piece, while Jason plays drum sets and Bobby is playing spoons, and I'm like, "There's no reason this should work." Yet somehow, because of Bob, Bobby having been around all these different collage artists and like all these different musicians who pieced, I mean, Julius, Julius pieced together. Stay on it to me is kind of a collage piece. Like, there's weird elements that he just sort of like plucks out of somewhere else and tapes on to the end. And then you look at Morton Feldman, the um, uh, Rothko Chapel, at the very end, there's that like little booty doody 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 thing that comes in at the end. You're like, where in the hell did that come from? That doesn't, yeah. like, you just taped a Time magazine over the end of this, like like Robert <laughs> Rauschenberg, you know? And when I look at Bobby, I feel like he is a, he could not have been who he is had he not been pushed through the sort of extruder yeah. of your program. Oh, yeah. No, no this, this is true. And this is, other students like Bobby too over the years. Students that have gone on not, not even to go on to have careers in, in musics per se, but who still do music. Uh, some of my most dedicated and devoted students, students that work the hardest, were not majors. Mm-hmm. Because music was obvious that music was so integral to their life that it was never going to go away mm. in, in lieu of doing something else. Okay, I do something else. That's fine. I'm good at that. Mm. I'll be a doctor. No problem. But, and I want a good job so I can afford to buy all these instruments, you know. Yeah. And those people, so I did not teach in a typical, my teaching methods were not, not, really trad- traditional even at the university level I don't think I mean you know I, I was <coughs> relying on a lot of innate talent that I had for this stuff uh, but it was easy lessons to get sidetracked mm-hmm. 
from doing. Look, here's how you do chromatic scales. You go up in C, you go down in C sharp, you go up in D, you go down in D, you know, that kind of thing. And here's all your made your your harmonic minor scales. Well, here's a great four mounts. We're gonna do these chromatic. Then it would break down because a student or something would come up with a piece I was just doing, working out with some composer. We get talking about it with a student, with, with Bobby. He says, hey, geez, you know. And, and a matter of fact, Bobby, could you like play in this piece because we need, you know, that kind of thing would happen. And so the lessons were a lot of times that way. So my students, you know, I had students that want definitely went on to have careers in music, successful careers. Um, I went up, up, whom I'm very proud of, many, many of my students. Uh, and I won't mention names because I'm, you know, <laughs> there are too many. I mean, anyway, um, but the, the ensemble was the, we played the very first Pasek convention at the Eastman mm. School of Music. We did Parasafasa on the stage of the Eastman Theater. <laughs> Did they think you were crazy at PASIC? I mean, like, at the very first PASIC? I mean, that would... John Beck, well, John organized it, obviously. <clears throat> uh, what's that, Beck? PASIC still thinks you're crazy. Well, <laughs> I love your wife's color commentary no, here, by no, the way. No, this no, is amazing. No, no, no. That was... It was great. I mean, we, you know, we got the audience, some of the audience and on the stage in the middle. Mm-hmm. And around. Yeah. We couldn't do it at all because of, but yeah, played it. And from that point on, I wrote articles for being known. Yeah. I've been passed many times, and, and, uh, but I uh, never was deeply involved with the organization because, well, again, I don't know, I was more composer oriented mm-hmm. as a percussion. So, you know, I was president of the Composers Forum in New York for a couple of years. Back in the day, I, what I just didn't have the interest in the whole broad spectrum of percussion. Mm-hmm. So I was I was very much involved with the research edition of percussive notes. You know, it used to be a separate a separate publication. Mm-hmm. You knew that? Did you know Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that I was on the editorial board for that with Jean-Charles Francois and uh, several other people, Mike Udow and, uh, you know, we, mm-hmm. we were, uh, and, and probably uh, Al Adi, uh, uh, soliciting and peer-reviewing articles, series about percussion writing and mm-hmm. Of all kind, but it was legit. Of course, then, then P.S. did away with the research edition as a separate thing, tried to incorporate it into percussive notes, which was more not, not a successful thing. I mean, it became more, I don't know. <laughs> um, so when that happened, I, I would do a little bit from the percussion mm-hmm. P.A.S. and that just. I didn't withdraw. I just, uh, you know, I, I stopped doing that. And mm-hmm. I became more interested in other things. But no, um, you know, that we took our the ensemble. I remember driving a van full of kids to St. Louis for the PAS 
And Philadelphia went with the with my group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Jen, this is you have given me way more stuff than I can <laughs> research in 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 you know. Uh, this is amazing and. Um, I want to. I want to just ask you one final question. You've been very generous with your time, and then I'll let you go. Um, what would you say has been like? You know, looking at Jan Williams now, and then looking at Jan Williams when you started. What are something? What's some advice you would have given to Jan Williams when you first started this? Like your your teaching journey, your you know all of this stuff. What's what's a piece of advice you would have given to Jan, young Jan Williams of like, hey, just do what you're doing, but keep an eye out for this. Practice more. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, Josh. What I'm, what I'm sort of being selfish here, Jan. I'm looking for advice. I need your advice. <laughs> <laughs> I was always, I have always felt that I was very. very much in the right place at the right time. And that's that mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. That I've always felt that I was very lucky that these opportunities came along when they did, that these people supported my work, both as a player, but as a, also as a, a mentor, as a, as a producer of concerts, mm-hmm contemporary music concerts and festivals. <clears throat> I'm always very appreciative that those opportunities were made me being in, at the university in Buffalo where I was free. I mean, I could, there were no demands. When the peer, when the uh, faculty evaluations came off, you know, the students, it was always, I just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't know. I, I can't think of a, how it could have gone better. You know, I mean, that's for me. I mean, I, you know, I'm probably by far the oldest person you've had on your podcast. How old are you, Jan? You can't be that old. 80, 81 years old. I Joan Tower. I'm, I'm curious how old Joan Tower is because I. Oh well, she's close. All right, you two may be neck and neck for holding the record. <laughs> you can fight it out with Joan, and I and I suspect you'll lose because she's a, she's scrappy. Lucky, lucky, I can still remember some things. <laughs> Don't ask me what I had for breakfast, but uh, you know, yeah. well, the old days come back pretty pretty strongly. I have very very very. Memories. I yes, there's some stories, you know, we could well, go on for. Well, this I'll have to have I'll have to have you back on because this yes, you know, whatever. and we can we can choose something more specific to to zero in on. But um, Jan, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I hope that we can meet up at the Anchor Bar and have toast a beer and do you know pretend we know what it's like to be in person again. Um, and uh, you know, and and. Just, I hope we can get together and play again. I don't know. Like, I just, I, I'm so, <clears throat> I'm struck be, be, having been locked inside now since March. I haven't seen my bandmates but once, or, you know, twice now, I think, since March. Um, and I'm, we need to have a big, like, not PASIC, but a big convention of all of our friends just to get together and hang out at the Anchor Bar. And, like, that's how we're going to ring in the new the new era coming up here. Can I close 
close yeah. out with one anchor bar story? Please, yeah. <clears throat> it was after Zanakis was in Buffalo for June in Buffalo in the 1970s. Zanakis, Morty invited Zanakis. We did a concert where I conducted Aonta and and then we played Persephassa at the Art Gallery in Buffalo. And Zanakis was at the concert as he was there for a whole week, around for a whole week. After that concert, we went to the Anchor Bar, which we did often at that time. It's been remodeled now, but at that mm-hmm. time, there was a separate room that could hold about 30 or 40 people. And we would always grab, grab that room and go back there after a concert. So we're sitting on this big table. Wings are coming, beers, you know, Jenny, cream ales. As Zanakis. Nothing but the best for Zanakis, Jan. Nothing but the best for Zanakis. <laughs> Roll out the red carpet. Bring me the Jenny cream ales. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but the best. Morty and Jan, Morty and um, Giannis were talking back in Milton. And at one point, Morty uh, Morty says, Giannis, how about you write a piece for Jan and Nora Post, the old boys, in our group? You know, you know it was news to me. I'm like... <laughs> Asking Zanakis. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, Zanakis will just, I'll think about it, you know, kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says, yeah, sure, I'll write a piece. Two months later, I get this piece in the mail to Mothin. Mm-hmm. So that's how that piece happened at the anchor bar over a plate of hot wings. That just goes to show. So here's the piece of advice that I, Jan, when somebody asks you the question, like, what piece of advice would you give to young Jan Williams? The answer is when you're at the anchor bar, do not be afraid to ask Zanakis to write you a piece. That's the answer, Jan. <laughs> after, after the wings and Jenny Cream Ale. Right. Yes. Be sure you sort of grease the skids with the Jenny Cream Ale and the wings. But. Anyway, Jan, that, I appreciate your time. This has been amazing. Please, okay, guys, have a good one. please Take tell your wife me. I said hello and thank you. Um, and uh, stay safe and stay Do healthy. Best to the other guys, and I hope you get together again real soon. I hope so too. But Jan, stay stay healthy, okay? And we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, you too. All right, thanks. Okay. Ciao. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check him out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at mango chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango chow, clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>